I find a lot of people who are athletes rely a lot on not very protein efficient foods. So things like using chickpeas as their main protein source in a meal. That might be great for someone who's just wanting to meet their protein requirements for general health. Like you can get 20 grams of protein in a meal between grains and legumes. That's fine. Um, but for someone with protein requirements that are say two, like 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo body weight to optimize recovery and muscle building, that's not really gonna cut it or you have to eat a lot of chickpeas. Kia ora friends, welcome back to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. The voice you just heard was Leah Heigl, sports dietitian, powerlifter, LGBTQIA advocate, and a metalhead. And on today's show, we hit you with the most common nutrition errors in plant-based nutrition. Stick around, it's going to be a phenomenal episode. A quick little intro before we jump in. My name is Jackson Burden. I'm a personal trainer, nutritionist, and gym owner here in Auckland, New Zealand. If you're after truly evidence-based information from rational experts in various fields talking directly to vegans and plant-curious eaters, then this is the pod for you. Before we dive in, if you're a long-term listener, why not consider a quick review on Apple or Spotify? Pause me now, hit me with a few five stars, preferably five would be good, and be done with it. I know podcasters always harp on about it, but it helps, so hit me up. All right, let's get on with it. It's good to be back. Enjoy this one, episode 41, with Leah Heigl, the Plant Strong Dietitian. Okay, Leah, so uh, I guess a great place to start, and obviously a good place to start with any podcast, is for you to introduce uh, yourself to our listeners so we get a bit of an idea of who you are, what you're into, uh, what your passions are, and all of that good stuff. So maybe we can, we can kick it off with that. Yeah, sounds good. So my name is Leah Heigl. I am a sports dietitian. I work predominantly in the plant-based slash vegan space. So working with a lot of plant-based athletes, I kind of like, ever since I became a dietitian, I kind of carved out that niche for myself since it's something I'm super passionate about. Um, I'm vegan myself. I'm a powerlifter. So just having that personal experience made it uh, very important to me and a very yeah, important niche that I wanted to investigate more. I didn't really feel like anyone was doing, well, not anyone, but I feel like a lot of people weren't doing a great job in that specific space um, and getting into the nitty gritty of sports nutrition science mixed with plant-based and vegan nutrition. Um, so it's something that, that I wanted to at least try to become an expert in, yeah. um, which I'm still you know, expanding my knowledge, still getting there, but you know, I think I do a pretty okay job. That's awesome. I want to, I want to go back, but um, before I do, uh, what was it specifically, do you think that that was missing that other people weren't doing in this space in regards to dietetics or specifically like plant-based nutritional training? Yeah, it was looking at a lot of people online in the plant-based fitness space that were they just weren't very science or evidence based um mm. it was all very like fit fluency and i'm yeah, like yeah. <laughs> we need more than this we need like evidence and there's no point having these arguments within the vegan space um if we're not going to at least look at the evidence and what the research says mm. and delve into that um so i felt like there was just a need for for more of those conversations to be happening and just someone to provide evidence-based information in the vegan sports nutrition space where there's not really a lot happening. 
Yeah, agreed. I I find I find it quite funny how that's it has been lacking in the past. Like probably in the I guess since I you know transitioned to veganism myself probably four years ago now. It it seems like that has been a a point of lack within like the the I guess the people who are putting out content or influencing to some extent. Even even in like more high profile like people who you know for example I was listening to a podcast of I won't name them but some authors that that brought out a book last year. And it was all around, you know, plant-based nutrition and athletes and things like this. And and even listening to them speak about something that's supposed to be experts in was, um, was I'm just sitting there like kind of shaking my head going, this is really bad information to be telling people. Like yeah. there was just no nuance to it. And I find that that yeah. really, to me, is a telltale sign of whether I should uh, follow someone, listen to someone, um, is whether they whether they involve context within their discussion and nuance within their discussion. And that's what I appreciate about when I found your content. It was very much, uh, you know, you, you put up a post around a specific topic, whether it might be, you know, um, nutrition for endurance athletes or protein or whatever it may be, but there's there's nuance to that particular topic. It's like, okay, cool. There's, there's scenarios where specific recommendations could be applied uh, or could, could change depending on the the people that you're working with depending on the situation so i think like that is often lost with a lot of people and when i start seeing people putting out content that is very black and white and 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 unnuanced then i then i kind of i'm like oh yeah i'll I'll question that and maybe it's a red flag it's a red flag exactly yeah Yeah. and i think whenever you bring ethics like obviously when we talk about veganism there is that whole you know, ethical philosophy philosophy part of that discussion that can create a lot of bias, even amongst health professionals and people that are evidence-based, like everyone's going to have bias. Um, But if you have a vegan practitioner that has a strong bias for everyone needs to be vegan, um, there's no other way of doing things, you know, you can start to see research in a particular way um, in that it's always going to be backing up kind of veganism. Um, And I like to look at it from a more nuanced perspective and go, you know, there, there are aspects of vegan nutrition that make sports nutrition or being an athlete more difficult. Um, And instead of ignoring those things, I like to let go, let's dig into them. Like, what are the solutions? Because a lot of people are going to be vegan regardless from an ethical perspective. Um, So how do we overcome these issues with, you know, pairing vegan and sports nutrition together? Um, So, yeah, I think any practitioner that ignores those issues, is it's a problem. It's a bit of a red flag. Yeah, 100%. And I guess guess a great place for us to to kick off, and I love to ask this of um, guests that are either, you know, plant-based themselves or, or follow a vegan lifestyle is where that spark came in for you. Where did that spark come, that transition, that helped you sort of transition into this lifestyle? Yeah. So for me, it was actually, I've been vegan for eight to nine years now. So a fair while I went vegan around halfway through my nutrition and dietetics degree. Um, and it had nothing to do with health. I was on Facebook and I saw snippets from the documentary Earthlings. Um, and those uh, pretty much the day after I saw the specific video from Earthlings, I went vegetarian. I was like, can't do it literally the next day. Um, It had been on my mind for a while. It's something I was like, I always thought, you know, I care about animals. I should go vegetarian. Um, But that just made me make the switch immediately. Um, And then it was literally people sharing videos on Facebook as well for eggs and dairy, like just seeing how they treat the cows and the chickens. And it's like, man, I 
got to make a change. And within a few months of seeing all that, I was 100% vegan and never went back. So for me, it's it's 100% like an ethical thing. Yeah. Over time, the environmental stuff definitely came into it, especially as I progressed through my degree. I was really interested in environment, environmentally sustainable diets and, and what that kind of means for, you know, world earth health. Um, but yeah, it started with that spark of just from an ethical perspective. Yeah. And I think, I think often, I mean, it's really common for a lot of people is to come into it from one perspective, whether it's um, ethics or whether it's environmental or, or planetary health or whether it's, um, you know, human health, but along that journey, they start to, look into and understand other aspects as well and kind of be like oh yeah cool I, I i agree with that as well and you know i'll take that on board as part of my kind of overall um you know like you mentioned philosophy of living so yeah. um i think that's really cool and you obviously had people on your facebook feed that were sharing this stuff so you were around other vegetarians vegans at the time or was that because when you started to see you know the content from earthlings you started to follow other people that were in that sort of space I think I was just following a few animal rights pages because it was something I was interested in and I hadn't really connected the dots too much between veganism and animal rights yet. Yes. Um, so I think it was just them just reposting things from Earthlings and, and other documentaries. And I was like, yeah, wow, time to go vegan. Yeah. Uh, so interesting you said, I mean, it's it seems now probably – because you're removed from that, you're, you're, you're a vegan yourself, you're in the industry, you understand how it all makes sense and it works in conjunction with each other. But I guess it's understandable to think that at that point you're like, oh, I don't really understand how veganism and, and animal rights connect. But it seems so obvious to us now, but I think – you know, and potentially uh, whenever that was for you, and and when it when it when I transitioned as well, it was. I guess you, I guess you're just unaware. You haven't been, yeah. You haven't seen the content, or you haven't been made aware. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting how that's so we're so oblivious to those connections. Yeah, I just hadn't really thought about it. Like you get meat, eggs, and dairy from the supermarket. You don't really make the connection between that and animal agriculture. You don't really understand what goes on behind closed doors. And when you see it, it can be quite confronting. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So so you, you transitioned into veganism. And was this um, before going into study dietetics yourself or, or did you transition during that phase of your life? It was two years into a, the four-year degree um, that I kind of started seeing all these videos and, and decided to make the switch. I think being halfway through a nutrition degree definitely made it easier to make the switch, but I was also only 18 with very poor cooking skills, so that <laughs> yeah. wasn't ideal, and I definitely learned a lot in that first year. Right, and did you find during that period of learning for you, um, specifically during your, during your um, degree, do you find some conflicts in terms of, I guess, what you believed based on your new values and what you're being taught based on uh, a nutrition paradigm that's based on carnism, as Melanie Joy likes to say? Yeah, it w there was definitely some, yeah, there was parts of me that was like, oh, I don't know if dietetics is right for me now. Like I have this internal bias that is all about kind of my ethics and philosophy and how am mm. I going to be 
an impartial practitioner? How am I going to be able to work with people that have no interest in in plant-based or veganism? Um, So I think whenever you first become vegan, I think you start out quite intense in your beliefs and kind of needing everyone else to kind of follow suit. Um, Just because I think you go, it's very black and white. Like one day I was not vegan and then the next it was my entire world. It was everything I would think about all the time. Um, So there was definitely some conflict. And I'm like, man, this is, it's a conflict of interest here. Um, But over time, I I think I was able to separate my my beliefs and my ethics and, and what I thought about animal rights and agriculture from nutrition science. Um, And at the end of the day, nutrition science does lend itself to a more plant-based diet. When we're thinking about general health for most people, a mostly plant-based diet with minimal animal products is what we see kind of being the best for chronic disease risk management um, and other things, general weight management. Um, So I think from that perspective, most of the time as a dietitian, you're telling people to eat more fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Um, People do eat way too many animal products, especially here in Australia. So I found that in practicing my, I guess my ethics kind of aligned with what I was telling people anyway, based on the nutrition science. So there didn't end up being too much conflict of interest. Um, but there obviously are times where veganism or plant-based or those recommendations aren't useful for everybody. So people with eating disorders, people with certain conditions that makes it not impossible, but it's it's not the best for them to transition to a plant-based diet. So I, you know, and initially that was a hard thing for me. And now it's it's just part of being an impartial ethical practitioner. Wow. Yeah, I love that. It's uh, it's interesting actually because I had a similar experience when I was studying to become a nutritionist. You know, a lot of the the recommendations for most of the, um, I guess the the different scenarios were being given, whether it was you know a bodybuilder or it was um, someone dealing with cardiovascular disease or whether it was a, a, a pregnant mom, whatever whatever the person would be. Um, a lot of the recommendations, yeah, they do come back to like, you know, just those really basic like healthy eating principles that you probably learned about at primary school. You know what I mean? Like yeah. eat a certain amount of like <laughs> vegetables, have some fruit every day, like real basic stuff. And the reality is like, I think people fail. I think a lot of the people on the, on the sort of opposing side to a plant-based diet, they fail to recognize that so much of what they eat is plants anyway, unless they're following a carnivore diet, um, they're likely yeah. consuming a huge percentage of their calories from plants. You know, so, like they just they just forget to think that, hey, look, I eat an apple and that's a vegan item. You know what I mean? That's a, and, yeah. and so they're like, oh, I never want to eat vegan. It's like, well, you, you already do eat so many vegan foods. It's it's not, you know, they just they just get in this mind that it's, um, it's some weird kind of concoction of foods. It's like you already eat a lot of those yourself. And then recently I was looking at some data on, um, on you know percentage of protein intake uh, globally and where that pr- protein actually mm-hmm. comes from, and about forty percent globally comes from plant foods in terms of protein. So you know even if someone is saying like oh, I can't you know I can't get enough protein you know without my meat, it's like well look the the stats say you know forty percent of your diet is already from plants anyway. So all you have to do is sort of top that up with some um, some maybe some you know uh, more thought out protein choices in terms of protein density and stuff like that and you'll and you'll get there pretty easily but it's a case of like just making people aware that they're they're kind of already halfway there you know (laughs) 
Yeah, 100%. I think people underestimate how much of, I mean, their food intake and their protein intake comes from plant-based foods already. Mm. Uh, So going plant-based or vegan seems like a huge switch. And I mean, it is for most people, but even just going more towards like that meatless Mondays and plant-based spectrum, um, it's it's easier than people think. It doesn't always have to be black and white. You're either carnivore or you're vegan. Right. Um, it's a whole spectrum to it, which I like to advocate for because a lot of people find that it's a lot more comfortable when it isn't black and white and they are sitting more in that middle. Um, and I'll, you know, maybe you're 75% plant-based and, and that's still way better than, than being, you know, 20%. Absolutely. I mentioned this to my brother last night and and I mentioned the term reducetarian and he'd, he'd never heard that before. And, and he was like, what does that mean? And I said, well, I guess it means a whole bunch of different, this different people. But to me, it means probably the majority of my friends group and, and people in my life and a lot of people, in, especially in the Western modern world, will end up being reducetarians where they go, oh, cool, yeah, look, there's a vegan option or there's a plant-based option at this restaurant. Let's give that a go. Or like, yeah. or maybe we, maybe we get, uh, maybe we do like dinners throughout the week without meeting them. You know, um, these type of like small little things they do throughout the week just to try and reduce their consumption a little bit for whatever reason they might think that's better for their health or they might think um, maybe we're going to try and do a little bit for the environment. But I think majority of people will go down that route as opposed to, yeah, a black and white, all or nothing mentality. I think there are certain people like yourself, myself, that are like once we're um, in on something, we're all in, you know. Yeah. But I think a lot of people are, are more sort of like, oh, we'll, we'll kind of play it safe and they kind of sit in the middle. Um, but the more of those people we have, the better in reality because, you know, those people would make a huge difference to, you know, not only the, 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 the animal welfare side of things, but they make a huge difference to the actual um, – the demand for products and you know how we actually uh get more products on the market and and get more i guess um, exposure to people of plant-based items and and default uh veg items at different restaurants and stores and things like that so they all play a, a large role yeah, I think it's so much more beneficial to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people reduce their intake of animal products than just a handful of really perfect vegans. Um, I think like accepting that there's that spectrum, it doesn't need to be black and white is really important. Um, there are going to be people that want to go 100% vegan. And that's awesome. I love when I get clients like that. Um, but there are so many people that come to me and they're just like, look, I want to go kind of more plant based, I want to learn more about plant based proteins, but, you know, I'm not willing to give up my cheese or my steak on a Friday night. I'm like, cool, you don't have to give those up. Like, let's just explore other options. Have you experienced uh, any, I guess, perfectionist uh, habits or, or mentality yourself in your in your journey? With the veganism? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to be really hard on myself when it was when it came to my veganism. Um, if I accidentally bought a product and it had uh, you know a little bit of like carmine or something in it, I didn't realize I'd be uh, I'd beat myself up for weeks. Um, and uh, I think over time that's, I've definitely gotten better with letting some of that perfectionism go. Uh, but you know, it it can be difficult when you have these really kind of staunch ethical beliefs and you like make this Mm. mistake that's against your ethical belief. And it's, it's a bit of a battle in your head, but I think the longer I'm vegan, the more I give myself the flexibility to make mistakes and just move on. Yeah. 
Yeah, one hundred percent. Because I guess at the end of the day, if you look at veganism as the philosophy of uh, reducing all unnecessary harm, that that doesn't anywhere in that philosophy state anything about being perfect. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and I and look with, with myself and and a bunch of friends here in in Auckland, New Zealand, and across the country as well. And when we meet up and we we have meals together we're all under the understanding that we're never going to be perfect. And even recently we had a retreat and we went to the supermarket, we bought some food and we bought some um, pita pockets and we assumed they were going to be vegan um, yeah. as most of them are. But these specific ones, once we got home, we actually read the label, which we should have done at the supermarket, of course. Uh, but it had, uh, it had milk solids in it. Right. And so, there could we could have you know we would have respected anyone who said oh no I'm not going to eat that because that's you know that's uh, that's past my sort of line in the sand, yeah. but you know all of us actually decided to consume that because we'd already purchased the product. What are we going to do with it? We can't throw it away, <laughs> or we can't throw it away, but it's a waste of food. Um, and it's the smallest. It's it's you know it's just the smallest little thing that just doesn't make a difference, and it's really not going. All it's going to do is really I guess just like you were saying, play on your mind and almost yeah get you to the point where you're just beating yourself up about such a small decision when you can just, you know, eat the food and move on. Just and move on. Exactly. <laughs> like veganism doesn't need to be that hard. Like we don't all need to be 110% perfect all the time. You just do the best you can with what you have. And I think that's enough. Yeah, no, I love that. And um, I guess a, a great question for you, Leah, is throughout this, this journey, especially as you've gone from, um, you know, obviously pre-dietetics to becoming a dietitian yourself. Um, how has your kind of mindset and stance towards nutrition actually changed over time throughout this journey? Have you, like, did you start off with a specific idea and mindset around what's what's a good diet? And then, you know, maybe you, you were challenged by that when you're studying and then maybe you were challenged by that again when you transitioned to veganism. Like, is it, what was sort of that transition of mindset for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I feel like I've been through a lot of different stages of how I thought about food and nutrition. I mean, initially, the reason I started my degree is because I grew up in a household where my mom was a bodybuilder. Um, so I was around this kind of fitness lifestyle all the time. And it was very like, broy in our house. Like we'd yes. all like, we'd use the kitchen scales to weigh everything. It was chicken, rice, and broccoli. She was like that kind of bodybuilder. It was in yes. the bodybuilding.com days. So it was very much that. That was my introduction to nutrition. Um, from there, I think I developed, I mean, being in a house where your mom has like a six pack and she's shredded all the time and you're a teenage girl, um, that definitely came with its issues around uh, body image and some disordered eating patterns, uh, I'd say probably around the orthorexia kind of thing where I'd always want to eat clean. Yeah. Like I'd refuse to eat anything that was not clean foods. Like it was all whole foods, unprocessed. Um, and even just like going to a party without like my container of food would give me a lot of anxiety. So that was like my introduction to nutrition not super helpful at all. Um, and that's when I found uh, strength training as well. So I had a lot of different things kind of going on. Um, from there, I with my focus on food, more from the disordered eating spectrum, I found myself in a nutrition degree, um, which honestly, a lot of people that enter nutrition degrees have some form of disordered eating or disordered eating patterns, um, because we're so focused on food, right? So the percentage of us that have eating disorders is quite high, uh, which is interesting. So 
that's how I entered nutrition and dietetics. Um, And then as I became vegan around halfway into that, it's when I completely kind of flipped. I went from being someone who was very, I guess, health and body conscious, almost too much, to someone who was, I didn't even really care about the nutrition so much of food. I cared about if it met my ethical beliefs. Mm. Um, And that was my focus for a long time. Uh, And it took the pressure off of having to eat clean and be really healthy and that being my focus. So I actually found this isn't for everyone, but for me personally, going vegan helped me get rid of some of those disordered eating tendencies and focus on on my body and put my focus on food into another arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I probably went too far the other way. <laughs> um, and then as I finished up my dietetics degree and I got into powerlifting specifically, my relationship with food got even better because I've learned to balance the veganism and not be perfect with that. I was no longer focused on um, eating really healthy all the time and never eating anything bad. Um, And I became really focused on just making my diet optimal for performance. And that was my goal. Um, And I think that brings me to now where I have a really great relationship with food um, and I can focus on performance and being a powerlifter and I can manipulate my body composition with no issues and yeah, in a really great place of food now, but it took a long time to kind of get there. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's very, uh, is very common for probably a lot of coaches to go through these huge like dynamic shifts in their mindset towards food and then wind up hopefully in a really good place after, you know, kind of going through <laughs> multiple phases of like potentially harmful uh, eating, you know, associations with food and and learning from those hopefully you know and, and seeking out advice and 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 help in different areas and, and i find that really interesting that you um yeah that you actually almost were able to use a transition to veganism as a way to um change yeah change your mindset towards what you're eating and almost did you did you feel like you were able to allow more sort of processed foods or junk foods in there because it was yeah. uh it, it was like okay well, this is vegan so let's just eat it you know Yeah. And it was, I was focusing on, okay, I'm going to be vegan. How can I make veganism taste good? (laughs) That was my main goal. Cause I'm like, I want this to be sustainable. Like I, the first time I tried tofu, I was like, oh no, I don't know if I can do this. (laughs) Um, Cause I'd never had it before. So it was really different. And the way I cooked it was awful. I made this like tofu chickpea curry and I just left it in big blocks uncooked and you know, not the first, not a good way to try tofu first. Um, so my focus was on, yeah, I, I used a lot of those kind of processed mock meats as transitionary products. Um, and yeah, my focus was really developing my cooking skills to cook good tasting vegan food more than it was to cook chicken, broccoli and rice, really yeah. uh, clean foods, which was my focus before. Um, so, you know, within the two, I kind of found this balance of health and enjoyment of food. Yeah, no, I love that. What do you what do you think that I guess because the the mindset of like clean eating, and you know the chicken, rice, broccoli, um, that is that is like across the board something that you know it happens across the world, and I think so many people who get into fitness, um, potentially not so much now. I don't I don't know what it's like now, but I know that when I got into fitness, that was kind of the mindset, and then it sort of transitioned. It was about the time that kind of things like if it fits your macros and flexible dieting started to become really popular and it kind of transitioned into that. 
But I guess where do you think the kind of clean eating mentality comes from? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know where it all started, but I mean, where I first came across, it was definitely places like YouTube and bodybuilding.com and a site called Simply Shredded. It was like the very much the bodybuilding side of things that I was following because that's initially what I was interested in when I started strength training. Um, And it was just, you know, all the sample diets that you'd have all these, see from these bodybuilders that weren't actually what they're eating, but that's what they tell you they're eating was just fish and chicken and greens and rice or potatoes. Like that's all they would eat. So you're like, oh, if I want to look like that, that's what I have to eat. Um, so that's kind of where clean eating came into it for me. And then I thought if I was to eat any processed foods, I, I'd just gain a lot of body fat and I'd look terrible and um, just making these big leaps and assumptions. So I had no idea about energy balance or kind of calorie deficits back then. I just thought if you eat clean, you get shredded. If you eat processed foods, you get fat. And that was my understanding of nutrition. And I think for a lot of people, that was their understanding of nutrition. Yeah, 100%. I think that very much still is the case um, today. And especially, you know, when working with clients, it's oftentimes it is it's sort of dispelling myths and it's um trying to give some insight and like you mentioned into energy balance and how that all works and and you know what you can make your diet up of and it doesn't have to be consistently made up of um purely whole foods although you know they do hold some benefit you know and so how do you approach that now with clients given the fact that we know that okay cool we do want a significant amount of our calories coming from unprocessed foods that are nutrient dense because they provide so many benefits in terms of uh, longevity and health and, and, you know, and daily metabolic control and all of these different aspects that are beneficial to whole foods. Uh, But at the same time, we know from experience that following a purely whole food diet potentially might not be the best approach for most people. Um, considering adherence and considering we're living in a a modern world where it is just so easily, easily accessible to consume processed foods at a very um, cost effective price and, you know, and, and, you know, consuming them in a manner that is very hard to stop, you know, because these foods are, you know, engineered to, you know, keep us eating them. So I guess, how would you approach that conversation now with a client? Maybe they come to you and they say, look, I, I, I really believe that, you know, or they they might mention to you in some way that they eat a lot more whole foods or they eat purely whole foods or they bring up the term clean eating. Yeah. yeah, How would you approach that now? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic because it's something I think about a lot, particularly within plant-based and veganism, because it overlaps a lot. I I think the new version of clean eating would be whole food (laughs) plant-based, which, you know, I have no issue with people wanting to eat a lot of nutrient-dense foods. Of course, that is awesome. But the issue becomes when we're so preoccupied with only eating whole foods, quote-unquote clean foods, that it becomes almost disordered eating. Um, So you might find yourself so focused on it that you're letting you're not you're not going to social events you're taking food to places with you and you're not enjoying life um so I might have a conversation with someone that like there is more to food than just health um and having some social meals out having that bit of birthday cake at your friend's party is not going to undo all of the good work that you're doing eating a bunch of nutrient dense whole foods like you should still be able to, to partake in those things and eat those kinds of foods because they give us 
emotional pleasure. Mm. And so much of food is being social and the emotional satisfaction from food. And it's a really important part of it. When we completely get rid of that or try to ignore that part of food, yeah, I, I think it definitely falls into the disordered eating spectrum. So I might kind of address that with a client over time once we've built a bit of rapport. Like it's usually not the first thing we'll talk about, um, but I might start trying to sneak in um, some things into their diet that they enjoy rather than being so focused on what's the nutrient value and density of this food and um, should I eat spinach or kale, which is better for me uh, and getting really intense about those things. Um, and then you have athletes. So it's an interesting thing from the perspective of an athlete, particularly when plant-based or vegan, if they have a really high energy budget, so they have really high caloric needs, getting that through a whole food plant-based diet can be incredibly difficult. You think most of the foods there are going to be really high fiber, high volume really satiating foods. Um, so if you have an athlete that trains multiple times a day, they have a calorie budget of three, four thousand, uh, three thousand, four thousand like plus calories. And they're trying to get it all through tofu and beans and fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. Uh, they can really miss the mark on getting enough energy and calories in, which is something I see all the time. Vegan athletes under fueling just because they are getting full before they're actually meeting their energy or calorie requirements. Mm. So in those cases, going for slightly more processed options that are lower in fiber, potentially have some added sugars, um, can actually be really beneficial for those athletes and can be used in a functional way mm. to fuel performance and meet calorie needs. So they have their place, whether you're someone who is really sedentary and just needs to enjoy food every now and then, or you're someone who's really active and actually probably needs to include those foods to be the best athlete you can be. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's a great answer because it, it just, it outlines the contextual nature of it. And, you know, and, and for, from my experience, like just finishing the, uh, the prep for a marathon, it's like, if I was to eat purely whole foods, the entire running prep, there's, there's just no way I could have gotten the food that I needed to get in. And, and also to try and fuel myself like during a run by eating purely whole foods, not going to happen. Um, no. And so the reality is for a lot of athletes, uh, you know, even if they're eating um, much more ultra processed foods, in terms of like, you know, even if it's that thinking about like sugar content and things like this, it's going to be utilized within their training because they're so, they're, they, they perform at such a high level, expending so many calories and they're really metabolically flexible and they're able to utilize these substrates really well during training. Um, it's just not going to be an issue in terms of like affecting human health. Um, and then when it comes to, yeah, the general population, like you were saying, I think so many people, um, gloss over the importance of the social aspect of eating and when when we look at okay what's optimal well what's optimal is is also needs to include like your social health because you know if, yeah. even if you look at some of the longest living populations in the world they all have incredible social communities and they all have things that and, and generally in life and this is what i believe is that the people around you is what fulfills you and brings you contentment within your life so if you're avoiding those social situations because you're like okay no I, I can only eat clean and if i go yes. to that party there's going to be like chips and there's going to be alcohol or whatever you're you're actually in my opinion that's a detriment to your long-term health um so potentially you know you can have a bit of both you know it, it doesn't mean you have to go there and you have to consume everything on the table or binge drink or whatever it may be 
and we, obviously you can work through that with a client and teaching them strategies mm-hmm. to uh, approach these social situations. Um, but at the same time, it's such a big part of, of how we live is, is centered around catching up with people for food or for a drink or whatever it may be. Um, but I think it just takes time and strategies and experience to develop a pattern of eating that allows you to incorporate, um, you know, both the 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 importance of the the health nature of our food choices, but also, um, you know, understanding that full restriction is never gonna is never gonna be a success for you. Yeah, you've got to be flexible. And I do find the people that uh, very much restrict the kind of foods that they eat, and they won't eat any processed foods or anything with added sugars, are the people that will overeat those foods or feel like they, oh, I can't have chocolate in my house because I just eat, you know, two blocks at a time and I just can't control myself. Um, like, yeah, no wonder because you're completely psychologically restricting yourself from these foods and putting them in this bad basket that you are going to think about them more often when you have access to them. You're going to overeat them and that's going to start a cycle of guilt. Um, and it's just it's going to be overall bad for your mental and emotional health, um, especially if that starts to happen a lot. And maybe it turns into a bit of a binge eating disorder or, you know, something that looks like binge eating disorder. Um, which does definitely happen. Um, So allowing yourself to have what I call fun foods uh, or functional foods for athletes every now and then and as you want them is a much better strategy than complete restriction because you're not going to completely restrict forever. It's just Mm. not how our psychology works. You're going to want those foods more the more you restrict. Yeah, 100%. So I guess, Leah, who would be the the types of people you, you work with now in your practice is it is it purely vegans is it athletes or do you have a mixture of sort of gin pop clients how are you working with yeah it's definitely a mix so i'd say a good 80 percent of my clientele would be either athletes or people who regularly exercise who are somewhere on the plant-based spectrum so whether that's vegan wanting to include more plant-based foods vegetarian wherever they might sit. Um, So most of my clients do kind of fall within both of those camps. Uh, But then I also work with a lot of athletes that have no interest in plant-based nutrition and just kind of just do eat as much plants as what is healthy for them, but no interest in minimizing their intake. Uh, So a lot of powerlifters, to be honest, because I'm a powerlifter. I see a lot of powerlifters just being within that community. Um, and then I work with some gen pop people who are vegan, uh, who might see me for just make sure their diet is well rounded. They might be after a bit of weight loss or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and then there's a very small sector of people that I work with in terms of chronic disease management. Um, although over time that has gotten really small. Um, and most of what I do is sports nutrition. Yeah, I guess that's the result of you being so involved in that community, isn't it? So yeah. you're, you're involved in a, a powerlifting gym, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I'm involved with a powerlifting gym, Valhalla Strength Brisbane, which I work out of. Um, I also have my own powerlifting gym that I go to, that Perfomotion, and I know all the coaches there. So just being part of that powerlifting community, I think people see a face, go, oh, they're a dietitian, I'll go see them. Yeah. Um, so they end up being a lot of my clients. Yeah, that's really cool. And do you find, I, I, yeah, so like you said, they're not a lot of them aren't completely, um, hundred percent, you know, plant exclusive. Do you find with a lot of them, you are 
um, able to encourage them to eat more plants in their diet or are they open to it or, or, or how does that work with those clients? Yeah, I feel like the people that opt to see me as opposed to my colleagues who are also in the powerlifting space would be people that are slightly more open to veganism or or plant-based eating. So they're like, oh, you know, you can chuck a tofu recipe in there and I'll give it a go. Um, So they're definitely more those people. And I I attract probably more women um, than I do kind of the very masculine powerlifting man, like super heavyweight powerlifter that's very meat focused. So I think just from the nature of who I am as a person, I do attract more like open-minded people when it comes to, I mean, all aspects of life being a little bit more um, alternative looking, uh, but also from yeah diet perspective. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's an interesting point you bring up. I think generally it seems that females are a lot more open to introducing more plants in their diet. I think because potentially they don't, they don't have this um, really negative association with, uh, with like it's not eating meat <laughs> you know from like a masculine perspective guys yeah. are are so fixated on the fact that they need me to be a man that they become yes. less open to actually introducing more plants into the diet so which makes sense as to why they potentially wouldn't gravitate towards a plant-based dietitian you know yeah i'm just i'm not their person like yeah. i'm a person for a lot of other people but not the probably hyper-masculine gym bro. They're probably yeah. not going to come see me so much. Yeah, 100%. And and so let, let's get you to describe, like what would be your ideal client to work with? Like who do you absolutely love to work with that gets you excited about working with, uh, with that person? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I love working with anytime I find another plant-based or vegan powerlifter, I'm like, oh yeah, like let's start a little, like this, a little team. Yeah. yeah that's um, cool. because, you know, there's not too many of us. So we all tend to know each other and run in the same circles. So I love when they come to see me. Cool. Um, but to be honest, my favorite kind of person to work with are plant-based combat athletes. I think, cause I can really nerd out on a combat athlete. Like Aspects of their nutrition is are so interesting, and I love doing acute weight cuts um, and things like that leading into a, a weight making sport, which you can do with powerlifters and stuff. But I find combat athletes are so fun to work with, um, and then you add in the being plant based or vegan as an added complexity to that. Just like to yeah nerd out on them a little bit, um, especially doing plant based weight cuts heading into a competition that can actually be quite difficult because acute weight cuts are all about manipulating, like in that week leading into competition, manipulating things like carbohydrates and fiber and sodium and things like that. And what we would usually do for someone who is who eats meat and animal products is we'd make that week kind of very meat cheese focused almost and um, with very little plant foods. So you're like, oh, how can I achieve the same results completely vegan um so that's been a little passion project of mine because it's not like no one else was doing this or like putting out information on vegan acute weight cuts so it's something i had to learn how to do myself yeah um, and i was thankful to have some athletes to like let me use them as guinea pigs um and that has been a very interesting part of what i do no one likes to hear me talk about it it's very boring um, <laughs> <laughs> but i nerd out on it i find it really interesting no, I find that really interesting as well. And as it's um like when it comes to yeah, like combat athletes, when generally what I've heard in, in most of that industry around weight cuts, um, and, and for for the listeners, it basically means like you know a fighter has to get to a certain body weight for their fight, and they want to get there basically with 
I think they have about, it depends on the sport, but they have around 24 hours or so before, like after their weigh in, before their actual mm-hmm. fight, depending on the sport. Um, so, which means they can drop down a significant amount of water weight and glycogen weight for their weigh in. So, they can weigh in as, as light as they can and then kind of yeah. replenish most of that before they fight again. So, they can fight, I guess, at the lightest weight they can, but with the, the most amount of muscle mass and hopefully most amount of like power and strength, I guess, is the rationale there. Um, but, you know, the, a lot of the information I see around that is, is it, it seems very bro-y to be honest. Like I don't see a lot of these high level UFC, um, nutrition coaches actually understanding like the evidence around and, and like in kind of talking from an evidence based or, or even understanding like the simple concepts. I don't know. It just seems like they're a little bit, a little bit lost and they can just kind of trying stuff that they've been taught or or just random techniques and stuff and not really basing it off off any kind of research is what i've i've seen anyways um so really cool that you know you're able to play around with it as well and i know you've got you know a lot more of like i guess that kind of evidence-based mindset but then yeah like you were saying throwing in throwing in a vegan diet on top of that i actually never even thought about the um the i guess the the like the amount of manipulations you'd have to do or like the just the yeah. strategies you have to implement to try and work through that is there anything specific you you do to kind of get around the idea of of you know i guess the traditionally higher carb high fiber diet in that kind of peak week yeah so i mean i found in working with people it's how much weight you can cut like there's there's definitely recommendations around kind of fiber intake and carb intake leading into a fight, depending on how much weight you have to cut. And it's really about dialing it in. But I found it's all relative to how much that person was eating previously. So if you have a vegan that has like 60 grams of fiber per day, which is not uncommon to have that or more um, for an athlete, um, and they're having four to 600 grams of carbs, um, perhaps you can you can bring that down a little mm less aggressively um, and still have some carbs and fiber in their diet in that acute weight cut and still get the same results. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's being very focused around very specific food choices. Um, and it's, yeah, I just find it such an interesting place to work with that. I mean, I could talk about it probably for a 12-hour <laughs> seminar um, and go through exactly how you do it. But there's a lot of intricacies that do make it a little bit more difficult and it's mm-hmm. definitely a lot less fun. Like, I find when I do acute weight cuts with people that aren't vegan, it's quite easy. Like it's not the most comfortable thing in the world, but they still get to eat foods they enjoy. Like they still like to eat their steak or chicken or whatever and cheese and um, just no veggies and stuff like that. But from a vegan perspective, it might just be plain hard tofu with smooth peanut butter. And (laughs) like when you do sodium restriction, like you can't really have many sauces or things like that. Uh, So yeah, it, it definitely becomes a bit difficult. It's definitely not as fun. Um, but learning how to do that with athletes has been really interesting. Yeah, it, it, it would be a very grueling week for that fighter, that's for sure. <laughs> it's not fun at all. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, so I guess I'd love to, to jump into, I guess, the main topic of this uh, discussion Leah, with you, which is I want to just cover some of the the main or the, the common errors you see with clients that come to you, specifically in regards to nutrition, um, and and for for plant based, uh, whether it's athletes or general population, like some of the most common ones that you run into it, and I know that like 
with myself, it's there are a lot of common commonalities with what people are coming to you with in terms of problems or errors in their diet and things like that you're seeing. So it'd be great for us to break some of those down for the listeners. Um, so we can cover off some of those more sort of frequently asked questions that you would get um, as a dietitian. Yeah, I mean, I, we probably can't have this conversation without talking about protein a little bit. Of course. <laughs> um, I feel lovely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't talk about veganism <laughs> specifically without at least mentioning protein. Um, but with the like the people that I work with, uh, their protein requirements are a lot higher than the general population. Thinking powerlifters, combat athletes, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I find it's it's very rare that someone will come to me and be eating an adequate amount of protein on a vegan diet for recovery and performance and muscle building specifically. Mm. Uh, so that's usually something that we will go over pretty quick smart and how we're going to increase it. Um, we'll talk a lot about protein efficiency. So how many grams of protein are in food, say per 100 calories and being able to fit a certain amount of protein into a certain calorie budget, particularly if someone's in a fat loss phase or cutting weight. That's very important to go over. Um, I find a lot of people who are athletes rely a lot on not very protein efficient foods. So things like using chickpeas as their main protein source in a meal, that might be great for someone who's just wanting to meet their protein requirements for general health. Like you can get 20 grams of protein in a meal with between grains and legumes. Mm. That's fine. Um, but for someone with protein requirements that are say two what 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo body weight to optimize recovery and muscle building, that's not really going to cut it or you'd have to eat a lot of chickpeas um, to the point your fiber intake and, and stuff's going to be so high, your gut's just not going to handle it. Um, so using protein-efficient foods, so things like your textured vegetable protein, certain mock meats I find can be really beneficial as long as you're choosing ones that are you know slightly less processed, protein efficient um, and do contain things like iron and zinc and whatnot. So some of those mock meats can be great. Hard tofu, um, protein powder is all, all, always a good one. Um, I always say don't use too much protein powder um, and to kind of cap it, don't have too much of your protein from protein powder, but it can be a great source obviously of protein. Um, so that's that's usually sort of like the first thing I go through with people yeah. is really taking them from a diet that's okay, this is great for your health in terms of you're meeting enough, you're having enough protein for health. How can we really up that so that you are recovering and performing the best you can? Um, and it is slightly more difficult on a vegan diet. Like we don't have a lot of foods that have 20 plus grams of protein per 100 calories. Mm -hmm. So we just don't have a lot of them. So I always say that like 12 grams of protein per 100 calories is a pretty good efficiency level for a plant-based source of protein. Um, but, you know, we really do have to be specific about what foods we're choosing for our protein because, if yeah, if we rely too much on nuts, seeds, and legumes that have like less than six to eight grams of protein per 100 calories, it's going to be hard to get to 150, 160 grams of protein per day with those foods alone yeah. without eating like a crazy amount of calories. That's right. So <laughs> protein efficiency uh, is definitely one thing that I go over with all of my athletes um, and is usually like in a couple of weeks just takes their recovery from okay to awesome. Yeah. 
Is there a specific reason you uh, recommend um, to cap the amount of protein shakes an athlete would have per day? Yes, the only reasoning behind that is uh, that usually in a protein powder, you're not getting the micronutrients you would get from whole foods. So if you're having 100 grams of protein out of protein powder and it's just straight up, say, soy protein isolate, you're not getting all those other nutrients that would be in things like tofu and beans and TVP and things like that. So particularly iron and zinc is something you'll really miss out on. Mm. Um For most people, I say like cap it at 30 to 40 grams per day of protein powder. Um, And then for someone who's maybe a bit larger with really high protein requirements, maybe 60 to 80 grams of of protein powder, uh, of protein from protein powder. Um, So, you know, that's the only reason I say don't go overboard with it. And if you can meet all of your protein requirements through whole foods, but protein powder is an easy, efficient way to, to get more in. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think it's 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 one that comes up a lot, especially with because I generally work with fat loss clients most of the time, and and sometimes I have I have clients um, who are coming to me for muscle gain, and, and we go for a weight yeah. gain phase, but often it is fat loss clients, and yeah, the key the key take home for a lot of those clients is like, yeah, we we do need to get our protein up, yes, but we can't just eat all the traditionally. Uh, recommended plant-based protein sources because yes that will equate to a large amount of calories and that's going to push us out of our calorie target for the day based on your fat loss goal so we have to target what you're calling protein efficiency um, sources which I really love that term and um, it's something that I present about in my in my educational presentations to my clients as well in regards to let's choose proteins that are based on uh, you know, amounts of protein per calorie as opposed to just uh, amounts of protein per weight. And, yeah. you know, and that's generally you'll see those infographics from those real cliche vegan pages <laughs> around like high protein foods and it's like pumpkin seeds and, and yeah. chickpeas and you're like, fantastic. That's really helpful. Thanks. But, um, <laughs> you know, so I think that's a great point, Leah, um, and definitely, definitely a great take home for some of the listeners now. So, Leah, did you have any um, other of those common common faults or common errors you see with clients uh, when they come to you? Yeah, I guess the, the next, I guess, big thing that people come to me for when specifically when they're plant-based athletes is gut issues. <laughs> A lot of people with gut issues. Um, and it usually boils down to the fact that they are eating so much fiber. So they usually come to me with, I've got abdominal pain, I'm really gassy, like maybe their stools have, have changed, you know, diarrhea, constipation, whatever it might be. Um, and they're like, I just don't know why. And we'll look at their diet and they're eating like 60 to 80 grams of fiber per day because they're trying to eat these, uh, meet these really high calorie requirements through mostly whole foods um, and they're just getting in a lot and like more fiber is going to be more gas production and you know to a certain extent from a health perspective more fiber is usually better Mm. um, but it gets to a point where that can cause gastrointestinal distress so like how are we going to manage that Uh, and usually it is introducing a little bit more of those slightly more processed foods and added sugars and and trying to shift their diet in a way that reduces their overall fiber intake and most of the time that does the trick so 
most of the time we're just reducing fiber intake from like 80 grams to like 40 to 50 grams per day is is usually what gets rid of their gastrointestinal issues they feel a lot better they're not they're performing better because they're not bloated and things Mm. like that uh sometimes it can be in relation to like the FODMAP load so FODMAPs are these types of carbohydrates predominantly in plant-based foods that can be difficult to digest um so when people have IBS a lot of the time it is due to like an issue with FODMAPs or a sensitivity to certain FODMAPs. Um, And we find that when people go plant-based or vegan, their overall FODMAP load in terms of how many FODMAPs they're taking in does increase because they go from having some low FODMAP foods, which would be predominantly your animal products, um, to a lot of high FODMAP foods, so fruits, veggies, grains, all those kinds of things. Um, and they've realized that, oh, I'm actually sensitive to these things, but I didn't know before because I wasn't eating a whole ton of them or it was a more of a mixed diet. Um, so sometimes we'll have to play around with overall FODMAP load or do a low FODMAP elimination diet and figure out what their individual triggers are and manage it that way. Um so I guess like in that perspective, it's not something that people do wrong, um, but it's something that is a common problem or issue that I find in plant-based athletes or plant-based people in general um, and something that people usually address in the wrong way because usually people go, oh, I'll remove gluten from my diet because it must be gluten or I'll remove, does they start removing random things from their <laughs> yeah. diet and, and just like go, trying to make guesses about what it is? Um, and uh, that can usually do more damage to your gut health by restricting the variety of foods that you're having um, and make like damage your gut microbiome and the, the health and variety of that microbiome more than it is doing you any good. So you can actually exacerbate your symptoms rather than maybe just going to a dietitian and and looking at fiber and, and FODMAPs in a way that is systematic mm. um, and and beneficial to you long term. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and, and FODMAPs is one that probably more people are becoming a little more aware of as it becomes, you know, mm. gains popularity. But I think it's one of those things you have to be um, careful with, just like with, you know, gluten and people just deciding, hey, I'm going to cut it out because that seems to yeah. be the solution that everybody's promoting. Um the same thing with FODMAPs. It's like, no, not everybody should be just cutting out FODMAPs, you know. And with FODMAPs, there's a very specific system no. um, that you, we, we use to enable someone to basically figure out, hey, which which of these FODMAPs is actually triggering the the uh, the um, the acute response in terms of, you know, bloating or or gastric distress or whatever it may be so there's a there's a there's a systematic approach to that and i think probably people who would just jump on the bandwagon of like just like they did with gluten i'm going to cut fodmaps now they won't understand that that system in place and understand that yeah it's actually about um bringing foods back in and figuring out what we can tolerate and what we can't tolerate um i did want to ask you leah was there do you think people can actually get to a point where they will tolerate 60 70 80 grams of fiber a day Yeah. So, I mean, our gut is highly adaptable. So we know that it can adapt to different conditions it's placed under um, in changes to the gut microbiome with what we're eating. So I have a lot of athletes that are eating just wild amounts of fiber and feel awesome um, because 
you know, maybe they just gradually increased that over time as they became vegan or increased their activity and increased their calorie intake. Um, and their gut was able to get used to that over time and they're feeling good. Um, some people, there is a cap to that though. Like if they might be able to tolerate a huge amount of fiber, like 60 grams, but maybe when they get to 80 grams of fiber per day, their gut just isn't adapting anymore. Like they're still feeling quite gassy. Like, so uh, I think you can definitely adapt to the higher fiber intake and that will happen over the, over a few months of you eating that fiber. Um, but it gets to a point where you're like, oh, I probably should just look at reducing it a little bit. Right. <laughs> it kind of does cap out at a certain point. Like, yeah, like I said, more fiber does equal more gas production. So mm. that at certain point is probably going to cause symptoms no matter what in everybody. Mm. It's just like everyone has a different tolerance amount. Um, and yet the longer you do it for the more that you're probably able to tolerate it. And what be, what would be a low end for people to, you know, not go beneath? Yeah, so the general recommendation is to at least get 20 to 30 grams of fiber per day. Um, I always recommend like at least 30 grams mm. per day for anyone who's, who's plant-based or not. Uh, so you don't want to go beneath that. And I find for vegans, like we don't usually go beneath that. It's pretty difficult for us. Like we'd have to choose just kind of processed, highly processed foods. Um, but yeah, that, that would be like my minimum. Yeah. And if, if there's someone listening who is potentially taking in uh, a lot of, or they didn't realize they're taking a lot of fiber, but they do have a lot of, you know, gas and, and they're really, they're figuring it out right now as to what's going on. Uh, what would be some of the, the key foods they could look at reducing that are traditionally quite high in fiber? Yeah. The first thing I always look at is legumes. So sometimes simply, having too great a volume of legumes in your diet because they're really high in fiber, but they're also really high FODMAP food. Like we, there's that like idea of, oh, if you have beans, you fart. Like there's a <laughs> yes, reason that's yes. a thing. Um, it, it does, those foods do have quite a bit of gas production in the gut. So look, you know, maybe we minimize your legume intake a little bit, or at least we start with a smaller legume intake and build it up over time as your gut gets used to it. Um, so that's kind of one I'll always kind of pinpoint. Um, but just generally, like whole grains are definitely one that are quite dense in fiber. So something, a strategy I'll use for a lot of my athletes who want to reduce fiber intake would be looking at changing some of their whole grains to slightly more processed version of grains. So maybe taking their all-brand cereal and, and making it Nutri-Grain. Yeah. Um, and that can have really quite a huge impact on fiber intake. We don't manipulate, manipulate fruit and veg too much, but other than just making sure that they're not having too much volume of fruit and veg, which is sometimes a thing in vegans where we kind of all sit down to like a massive salad or something like that and maybe eat far beyond the recommendations for veg intake. It's not a bad thing, but if it's causing you gut upset due to the fiber or whatnot, then it's something you can definitely look at bringing back um, a little bit. So that is something I see a, a fair bit, yeah. Yeah, rad, love it. So why don't we hit one more um if you've got one more, Leah, one more of your, your common common uh, areas that you see with clients and then and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this one up. Yeah. Oh, where could I even I, – because there's, there's like a lot of little ones, right, that come up mm-hmm. a lot. But I guess just in general, not checking uh, your uh, bloods enough. So I think there's definitely something to say about – I mean, on a vegan diet, some nutrients are more difficult to get. 
going to say it like sometimes it is. So things like B12, iron, vitamin D, iodine, they're all going to be slightly harder to get on a plant-based or vegan diet. So the best way to go about that, if you're eating predominantly whole foods from a range of different food groups, that's a huge start. But I still like people to get their bloods checked. So, you know, check where your iron is at, check where your B12 is at, um, just to make sure you're on the right track. My general recommendation is once or twice per year for my vegan clients to just have that done. Um, Specifically looking at iron in people with a menstrual cycle. So that is, it's a really common one for just women or people with a menstrual cycle to have low iron, but particularly when they're vegan, because it can be a little bit harder to get. So I find a lot of my clients come in, I tell them to get their blood test done and they do have a couple of underlying deficiencies there that once we rectify, they feel so much better. So I just say like, it's an easy thing to do. Usually like in Australia, go to your GP, ask them to like, just tell them you're vegan and they'll test for the right stuff. Just see where you're at nutritionally. Um, You won't be able to get an idea of all the nutrients because we can't test everything through the blood. Um, But some of those key ones we can, and if we have access to it, why not? Um, And I guess a little caveat to that is people not taking their B12 vitamins when they're vegan. Uh, If you are vegan, I always say like, that's my non-negotiable. You have to take a B12 supplement or get injections using fortified foods or whole foods to get your B12 is not a reliable way to do it. Um, And because of the issues with B12 deficiency and long-term nerve damage and potentially brain damage, I try, I do a little bit of fear mongering with that one. Cause I'm, I saw, I had one client once that did have nerve damage from being vegan for many, many years and not taking a B12 supplement, which kind of scared me. Yeah. Um, so I try to like kind of relay that to clients in terms of just take your B12. Yes. <laughs> like I know maybe your, your so good milk has a bit of B12 in it and you, you take that every, you have that every day, but look, just take your supplement, Yeah. get your bloods tested every now and then see if you're on the right track. Yeah. I mean, the, the B12 is just it's cheap enough for most people that they can just take that supplement. And people are buying pills and stuff anyway. They might as well just buy a B12 and cover their bases. And I think, yeah, I've, I've got clients even at the moment who have never taken B12 before. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Like, how do you feel? And they're like, I feel great. And, you yeah. know, so there are people and then there's other people that I know who, you know, they'll stop taking it for a few months and they start feeling like shit. So it's yeah. a case of... um it's going to be individual dependent as to how you feel. But at the same time that I don't know quite if that equates to whether you're actually experiencing like nerve damage or something like that as well, the best based on how you feel. It takes a long, long time to develop those kinds of symptoms. Like you have to, I mean, B12 deficiency in general takes a really long time to develop, especially if you were not vegan prior and you've gone vegan, like it can take many, many years of not supplementing to fall into deficiency. But because that gradual decline in kind of energy levels and how you feel is so slow, most people don't notice it. Mm. So if you're not having your bloods checked and you're not taking a B12 supplement, the risk of you developing a B12 deficiency and not noticing it, letting it underlie for many years and developing those those more uh, like those worse symptoms and conditions is it's yeah, it, it's there, like the risk is there. So just take your supplement. Yeah. Um, even if you've, because I always have vegans that have like, oh, I've been vegan for five years. I've never taken a supplement. My B12 looked fine when I checked. Um, but what they don't see is it slowly coming down over the years. 
Um, so they don't really have the whole picture. So gotcha. just take it. <laughs> I, I've seen what happens when people don't and it's not something you want to mess with. Yeah, no, agreed. No, that's awesome, Leah. So we've got three pretty big take-homes for listeners there in terms of common areas that you see with clients. Number one, focusing on your protein efficiency. So looking at protein items that are higher protein per uh, per calorie as opposed to per weight or per gram. Um and then we have obviously uh, looking at your fiber intake if you're experiencing gastrointestinal distress or bloating or gas or anything like that. Looking at your fiber intake, maybe track that for a week and, and see how you're doing in terms of your fiber. Um, and then lastly, get your blood panels done once or twice a year and take your damn B12. <laughs> yeah, yeah so that's a good summary. <laughs> hey, I, I forget to do this with a lot of uh, um, guests and I thought I'd do it today is a couple of quick fire questions for you to finish up here. So um, number one, uh, mm-hmm. what's your favorite lift in the gym? Bench press. Interesting. Interesting. Why is that? Uh, it's always something I've been – I don't want to say good at on toot my own horn, but it's always <laughs> been my best lift. Um, yeah. Squats are my my worst lift. Uh, deadlifts are mediocre, but uh-huh. bench I've always just had a little bit more upper body strength. So that is interesting. You like what you're good at, I reckon. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. That's <laughs> very very much the case. <laughs> and secondly, uh, what's your favorite tunes to listen to, listen to when you're training? Oh, I'm a I'm a big metalhead. I I love deathcore and metalcore and stuff like that. So I definitely have to say something along those lines. My favorite at the moment is Lorna Shaw, just like a blackened deathcore kind of band. Um, so I'm I'm super into that stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, there's uh, there's one for the listeners to go look up for the next heavy bench. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe start with something lighter if you're not into metal. <laughs> yes. And lastly, what you're in Brisbane, right? So what's the what's your favorite eat spot in Brisbane? Oh, I'm probably a bit biased because before being a dietitian, I actually managed a vegan grocery store and cafe for a few years. So it's called the Green Edge. And I love that place. Their food is so, so good. I ate there for three years every day and wow. I never got sick of it. Um, so I definitely have to say, yeah, the Green Edge. <laughs> Awesome. I'm very rarely in Brisbane, but one day I'll get there and uh, I'll have to check out the green edge. Yeah. Hey, that's awesome, Leah. So I'd love to finish up and ask you, hey, what are you working on for 2021? Um, You can hit all your plugs here, let people know where they can find you in terms of um, for your coaching. I know you do online work as well. So um, go ahead and, and let the people know where to find you. So you can find me on Instagram. I'm plantstrong underscore dietitian and I have all of my other things linked there, but that's kind of like my main hub where I do everything and where I release all my content, which I'm super passionate about. Um, In terms of what I'm working on this year, this year is actually more about getting into powerlifting and work-life balance for me. Um, So whilst I'm still taking on new clients, I'm I'm working on that work-life balance and, and making that a little bit better after a couple of years of working six to seven days a week so right that's my goals for this year um and, and of course competing in powerlifting again after a bit of a hiatus so have you got have you got any competitions lined up for yourself i'm thinking of doing one in december so i haven't really chosen which one but i want to qualify for apu states next year um i'm changing federations uh so i i want to want to qualify at the end of the year and, and see where i go from there that's super exciting. Well, we'll have to uh, we'll have to keep tabs on the Instagram and see how you're doing <laughs> with that. Yeah. 
Awesome, Leah. Hey, thanks so much for coming on again. And uh, we'll have to do another one, I think, and, and dive into some more topics. It's been a really insightful conversation. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Well, there you go, guys. Episode 41 with Leah Heigl. Man, I've really enjoyed that conversation. I've already provided a little bit of a summary for you in the episode, so I won't dive into that one. But if you do want to hear Leah again, I would love to chat to her again. Let me know what you'd like her to talk about, what topics you want us to cover. She's a wealth of information, and I feel that we are very much on the same wavelength on a lot of uh, topics around plant-based nutrition. So hit me up. Aside from that, I'm hoping to get into some new recording over the next few weeks and bring out the rest of uh, Season 3 for you. In the meantime, hit me up over on Instagram, veganbody.coach. If you're needing coaching, check out the website. That's where all of my information is around that side of things. Uh, And on top of that, if this is an episode that you think someone will find benefit in, I feel like whether they are plant-based, either currently or there's someone who's transitioning, this is probably a really phenomenal episode for them to get a bit of a handle of some of the main areas uh, that people find or that people run into when they're going into a plant-based way of eating. So throw it around, share it with a friend, let me know how they find it, and we'll catch you in the next one, plant friends. Plant Friends.